When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone welcome to group text so before there were influencers spilling the tea and dancing virally on tiktok and instagram there were what we used to call raconteurs telling outrageous stories at salons and gin-soaked dinner parties my guest today scott michael nathan is a writer and celebrity photographer who has managed to do both and now he's written a book the big book of bad decisions sadly very relatable to me on a, for a number of different reasons, which is available through baddecisionsbook.com. Scott is also a renowned photographer whose stunning photographic exhibition, Confessional, debuted at Freeze LA in 2019, which, if you don't know, is a really big deal. Scott Michael Nathan, welcome to Group Text. I'm glad to be here and glad to see your face, as always. I know, and we've known each other forever, it feels like. Yeah, and live in the same town, but never see each other. So we well, should fix it. Yeah, well, you live on a different side of town. We we live on different end sides of the freeway. I have a passport. I can cross the four hundred five, Mel. Oh, good. Okay, good to know because I don't like to. Um, so I've known you as a photographer for years, but I really had no idea you were such a hilarious storyteller. And honestly, I, there's very little I actually know about you like where are you from what do your parents do where did you want to be when you grew up any brothers or sisters favorite color I don't even know how you became a photographer so first of all where did you grow up so I grew up in Chicago I grew up on the north shore of Chicago basically if you've if you've seen any John Hughes film pretty in pink breakfast club risky business that's where I grew up in like jaded white square suburbia Perfect. And what did your what did your parents do? My parents were like uh, my parents sold sold electrical supplies, like kind of like a warehouse forklift business, and uh, sold you know fluorescent tubes to sports arenas and high rise buildings and that sort of thing. And I'd sometimes work there over the summer and drive trucks and drive forklifts and that sort of thing. Just kind of a you know just a bread and butter business. But, but how I got into photography was my dad rented office space in this building that was all photography. So it was like an eight-story camera building. And then Ford Models was there, Ford or Elite. Uh, Kodak was there. And then there were all these photographers, for some reason, had their studios in this building. And I became very interested in it. I was an avid skateboarder in those days. And it was an old deco building with the manual elevators. And I used to like to go to work, not because I was interested in my father's business, but they had these smooth marble floors. And I like to skateboard up and down the halls. And then one day a photographer stopped me 
And he says, hey, can I take your picture? And I'm like, oh, stranger danger. You have to ask my parents. <laughs> so I took him over to my parents' office. They're like, well, do you want to do this? And I said, yeah, let's have, let's give it a go. So I did a little bit of child modeling. I did some like Marshall Fields catalog. And then they were, my parents were like, do you like this? And I was like, not really, but I want to do what those guys do. So I would go and knock on all the photographer's doors. And I'd be like, are you shooting today? No. Are you shooting today? No. Are you shooting today? Yes. I'm like, can I watch? Like, if you sit in that stool in the corner and don't make a noise, you can watch. And I was like nine. I was a kid. I was nine years old. And then Hanukkah rolled around and they were like, what do you want? You want an Atari? You want an air hockey table? And I'm like, I want a dark room. And my mother's like, he's not playing with dangerous chemicals. He's a child. And my father was like, he's not going to drink them. He's not an imbecile. So they built me a dark room. And I was crazy. Like in hindsight, I would take these like expensive cameras and my father and I would get on the L train, which is the subway. And I would go to the worst neighborhoods in Chicago, the most dangerous projects. And I just knock on people's doors and be like, can I take a picture of your family? Wow. And then no one ever messed with me. No one ever stole from me. Cause I was like, I don't know. I was like a friendly kid. And I just started doing like street photography and then taking photography in high school. And I always did it as an enthusiast but I never thought to turn pro. And when I told my parents, I kind of wanted to do this and they're like, we're not paying for college education in the arts. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a doctor. <clears throat> you're going to be a businessman. It's either that, or you can go just go get a job and we're not paying for college. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go into the workforce. It's not, I'm not really cut out for that. So I'll go to college. So I went to college. Where'd uh, you go? I went to Boulder. Oh, you know what? You mean everybody's, I wasn't allowed to even apply to Boulder. That's interesting. I was not allowed to apply to anywhere in California. Oh, because they shipped my ass east and they knew that I, I would, it would not be a healthy environment for me in the sense that all I would do would be ski all day. Where do, well, accurate uh, for me. Where did you go to college? I went to Penn. Ah, Ivy League girl. Yeah. Much of your time, because I don't know this about you. I remember your mom made that great joke to me where she asked if I had ever been to her apartment in New York. And I was like, no, how would I have ever been to your apartment? And she's like, you should come. You should come for Passover. And I said, what's it like? And she said, and I know she's used this joke before, but all comedians do. She says, that's how Marie Antoinette would have lived if she had as much money as me. Yeah. Or it, it, it used to be, uh, she, uh, how is she? She say uh, it's it's how Marie Antoinette would live if she had taste. Ah, nice. Yeah. So uh, sadly, it never made it to your mom's apartment. But how much time did you spend on the East Coast versus here? Uh, well, I went back east for four years for college, and then I came racing back home because who doesn't want to live, you know, in L.A. by the beach? I grew up on the West Side, so this was home to me. Okay, and, I didn't know that. I didn't know that yeah. you grew up here or in New York. No, I grew up here. And uh, my dad died when I was right before my junior year. So my mom moved to New York and I came home. And truly, for years and years and years and years, I would just go back and forth. So it was probably 70 30, um, more or less, right around there. So I know New York well. I still, some of my closest friends still live in New York from college and. You know, but I'm, you know, when you're, when, when you're raised, it's weird when LA is your hometown, it's very different. Yeah. You know, so for me, I came home. 
I don't know. I always thought of your mom as just like, and I just didn't know. I just thought of her as like a born, bred, and buttered New Yorker. Well, she uh, she was, and uh, yeah. I, I mean, we're getting off topic now. But when my parent, my parents never liked LA. They never fit in. They were so not cool. They never were like at the swinging parties in Malibu. Like it just was not their vibe. And yeah. they always had this deal that which. Ever one was left, whichever one died first, the other one would move back to New York. Which is and some weird path. Yeah, my happen? mom moved right back to New York and was much all, happier. Did you always have that place in New York or did no. she do it? Okay. No, All right. No. We were we were regulars in hotels. But yeah, so my parents were both my dad was European, but they were both true New Yorkers and they moved for work. That's the only reason they ever left New York was work. Interesting. Okay. So how did you end up in L.A.? After skiing and basically partying your way through Boulder, just like everybody does. All right. So it goes back to like, and I think you guys, I think you and I are contemporaries. So it was like the late 70s and we took a family trip to California. So we flew into San Francisco. My dad rented this big Lincoln Town car, which was the size of a yacht back then. And we drove down PCH. And I remember looking at all of this and just like, you know, Chicago in winter looks like a Warsaw post office. It's just gray and dreary and sad. And it's a great town. But the weather, uh-uh. So I remember we took that left onto Sunset Boulevard and we stayed at a hotel called the Westwood Marquee, which is now I remember the- I remember the Westwood Marquee. That's was like where you would go for like a good for like a fancy brunch. Like every Mother's Day the place was packed. Yeah, and then my sister was like 15 and she's like doing blow with the beach boys and we're like driving down Sunset Boulevard and I'm seeing like these gated homes and I'm smelling the jasmine in the air and I'm in the backseat of this town car, this little rosy cheek ginger and I'm like, um, excuse me, why don't we live here? <laughs> and my parents said that they knew like from that moment on that someday they would lose me to this town. And I was in Chicago right out of college and I was working at this music publishing company, this division of Warner Brothers. And it was just like 40 below zero out. The wind is whipping and everyone's screaming, just trying to get to work. And then a woman across the street slipped on the ice and fell on her ass and screamed, I hate this effing place. (laughs) And I was like, I hate this effing place too. I am out of here. And And so LA, you came. I, LA, I came and like with very little, I came with like three black t-shirts, three white t-shirts, a pair of motorcycle boots, my Harley Davidson and my car. And basically how we all still dress. Pretty, that's exactly my (laughs) uniform, yeah. (laughs) And honestly, it was, uh, yeah, it was great. And I moved here right before the Northridge earthquake. And I was how I was house. The Northridge earthquake turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I was couch surfing. I had no place to live. And then my friend's father had this huge mansion that he just built up in Mulholland Estates, you know, about Mulholland and Benedict Canyon. And the house got wrecked in the earthquake. But a yellow tag, not red tag. Yellow tag meant you could live in it, but it needed repairs. Red tag mean you had to move out. Green tag meant no damage. So he says, that, and he was like a real. Uh, you know, OCD guy, couldn't handle dust or noise or anything. So he says, Scott, do you have a place to live yet? I said, no. He said, I'll tell you what, if you watch the house, you can live in the house for free. Just make sure the construction man don't steal the pool furniture. So I'm like, Jerry, I'm your guy. So I had this 10,000 square foot house 
that I called Hotel Beirut because like six of the chimneys had fallen. It looked like a bomb. <laughs> and my neighbors were like Wayne Gretzky, Shaq, uh, John Fogarty from Creedence. And I had this long hair, so they must have just thought that I was like this musician or something. And it was great. But I was so broke. I was like living off of avocados and oranges on the tree. And I was starving, but my hair and skin was amazing. Of course, you know, all that avocado oil. So as a parent, and and as kids, we always heard, I hope you make good decisions. Yet your book is all about bad decisions. So did as a kid, did you ever make good decisions? Well, here's the thing. They're not these bad decisions are not lost on me. It's not like I don't see them coming. I just have this. Some people are, have addictions and my addiction is seeing how the story ends. Like I'll see a terrible date right in front of me and I'll be like, what's going to happen? And most people see the train headed for the cliff and run the other way. Whereas I have to watch it burn in the canyon until the fire goes out. <laughs> I'm going to use, I'm gonna use that. I just love a story. So what's the origin story of, of the book? How did it start? The origin story of the book is um, I had terrible insomnia. And then my lawyer friend, Hope, talked me into trying this stuff called Ambien, which is a terrible idea. And you do things on Ambien, like you sleep eat and you sleepwalk and I would eat a pint of Haagen-Dazs. And some of us sleep shop on Amazon. Yes, I've done that too. That's why one one click is not good for me. No, no, me either. I had to turn that off for that very reason. (laughs) Exactly. One time I drove to Rock and Roll Ralph's, the one on Sunset, and I bought $475 worth of frozen food. (gasps) Nothing I had ever bought before, including multiple turkeys. And I woke up in the morning (laughs) and like, why is my living room floor flooded? And I walk out and there's a sea of Ralph's bags all melted. And I'm like, oh, God. (laughs) We've all had moments similar to that. Yeah, so I started writing these dispatches in an ambient blackout. And I wake up one morning and I've got like hundreds of likes and comments. And I'm like, what did I do? And I told the story about losing my virginity to a girl who told me she was a virgin when I was 17 years old and she was 15. And she gave me gonorrhea, this virgin. (laughs) But not before we destroyed her father's brand new Ferrari, smashing it into a million pieces. And then she got sent to prep school on the East Coast. And that was that. I trust Okay, how did you explain to your parents that you got gonorrhea while losing your virginity, which a teenage boy really does not want to discuss with his mother? You know when they're going to find out about it? When they see this podcast, because I never told them. (laughs) Okay, so you paint a very distinct picture of Hollywood, which honestly is not as pretty as the photographs you take. Uh, Which do you think is more accurate or do you think it kind of falls somewhere in the middle i don't know i think hollywood is a set hollywood you know if you turn on you know some i can't remember who said it but if you turn off the sprinklers it will turn back into a desert it's you know it's all of a a mirage and it's my job as a photographer to sell consumer products to make people look as beautiful as they possibly can and i don't take all the credit i'm good at lighting and composition but you know the importance of hair and makeup and wardrobe and, and Trust coming me. together. And I love that. But this is a tough town and it's no place for the weak. And if you've got thin skin, this place will chew you up and spit you out. 
And I don't know, growing up in Chicago, and I lived in New York City a little bit after college, and in places like that, when when I sh- when you shake someone's hand in New York or Chicago and you say I'm going to do something, your word is your bond. Like me telling you I'm going to do something is the same thing as a legal contract. Well, such is not the case in L.A. Uh, so it used to like hurt my feelings when people would break plans with me or be fake with me. And I learned to just develop a better attitude about it. I learned that like human beings are like a hand of poker. You get five cards, you look at them, you take three, you throw them back in the pile, you keep two, you keep playing. And you just curate your your crowd, like who, who your good people are, because there's just it's a lot of dodgy people here, as you know. Well, and, and you cover a lot of them in your book, which kind of reads like Charles Dickens wrote Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, or as a friend of mine said, I wrote this down, a tale of one really fucking shallow city. Um, and you've had run-ins with prison inmates and porn stars on the hunt for sugar daddies and backstabbing and fragile A-listers. How do you stay sane? And small S, not big S. Well, first of all, I, I don't think I am sane. You well, know? Said, but small I mean, you're a functional human. Fairly. At a given day. Um, I just learned to have it. You look, it, it, if you, it's sort of like the news. If you let it really get to you, if you doom scroll Twitter all day and, and, and just watch the horrors of Ukraine and the Middle East, you're going to be a very unhappy person. So I just try to find the humor in everything. Like, and, you know, your mom was a huge influence on me as even as a little child when she hosted The Tonight Show, because she could always take just horror and make fun of it. Mm-hmm. And it's not just her. It was George Carlin. It was just so many people who you you, look, if you just find if you can't find humor and horror, your life is just going to be unbearable. And and, you know, someone said to me, someone dug into me and said, you know, you post all the time on social media and you've got 100000 followers. Why haven't you posted anything about Israel? And I said, listen, it's not like I hide my Jewishness. I talk about it all the time. I'm a proud Jew, but there has to be another channel. There has to be a respite, a reprieve. There has to be a place for people to laugh. And honestly, you posting a Star of David and Am Yisrael Chai, you're not solving the problem either. You're just adding to the sadness. So I just do what I can. That's very deep. Um, <laughs> that just threw me for depth. Um, something which thought we had in common, which was a lack of it. Uh, My mother and I were lucky enough to be photographed by you. And other than us, who were clearly your favorites, I mean, I know that that was a life-changing moment for you. Who who was your favorite and who was your worst? Because I can still tell you who my worst interviews were on the red carpet without even, like, thinking twice. Tommy Lee Jones, fucking nightmare. And you would see him coming down the carpet, and I would just be like, what did I do to deserve this today? Give me an anecdote. Like, what was the nastiest thing he said to you? Well, first of all, he was miserable having to do any kind of press, and clearly it was contractually obligated or he was nominated. And I think he actively tried to make you as miserable as he was. I literally believe that. I be- did, you ever, did you ever give it back? When you're live, you can't. You don't want to be rude. But I would just be like, you know, this is fun. 
You know, I would say something like that. And the first time I interviewed him, he came during a commercial break. And I thought, okay, we have so much in common. I'm going to break him down. I'm like, oh, you know, you went to an Ivy League school. I went to an Ivy League school. I rode show jumpers. You're into horses. You're an outdoorsman. I do a lot of the same things you do. It did not make a rat's ass bit of difference. He was going to make sure that I was as miserable as he was. And you would see him like at award shows coming and you would just see everybody's body just go, oh, you know. All right, just, so it wasn't just you. He was just a no, prick to everyone. he's just a prick. He's just, a, I mean, a friend of ours, uh, a very close family friend of ours was writing a huge story on him for a major magazine. And she was a very famous uh journalist but not like diane sawyer or whatever she was truly like writing and um she had to go to his house in wherever it was texas or whatever and she was sitting there waiting and you know he hates doing these things and he walked out naked and she literally did not react and he sat down and did the entire interview like that that's amazing i mean that's that's a a dick move yeah, I, I I had a friend who had a meeting. I've never told this story before, but screw it, it's you and me. Yeah, um, a friend of mine had a meeting with Kanye West, and you know, said he was you know, nuttier than squirrel shit from the from the moment she walked into his house. But mid interview, uh, he just started backing up, and then he opened a bathroom door and sat on the toilet and started shitting and farting while talking to her. And she's like, I'm just trying to keep this sane. I'm just trying to keep this normal. Uh, So I just pretended like everything was okay. But that's totally fucking bananas. And then, uh, and then she reached. He comes back in the living room. Did he wash his hands? I didn't ask. Actually, come to think of it. So she's like, I reached into my like my big bag, and I have bottle of pineapple juice. He goes, What are you drinking there? And she goes, Just just pineapple juice. He goes, That's what this meeting's about. And she goes, pineapple juice? The, the This woman throws big corporate events, so she was there to do an event. He goes, yeah, you and me are going to start a, luxu- a luxury pineapple juice. It's going to be the greatest pineapple juice in the world. You and me, partners, right? And she goes, okay. And I go, so what happened with the pineapple juice thing? She goes, he never called me again. <laughs> but see, my whole thing is like, she went to FISPO and I'd be like, did you wash your hands? Yeah. And I go full OCD. So, I went to a I went to a sound check with Rodney Dangerfield once in Chicago, and he came out with a bathrobe to do his sound check, which I guess isn't that unusual. And then he had a corn cob pipe. Remember those ones that yeah, they yeah, sell yeah. in drugs? And he's smoking weed out of a corn cob pipe. And then every person, man or woman, that walked by that worked in the venue, he'd open up his robe and flash them. <laughs> and let me tell you something: this guy did not have the body of Brad Pitt in Fight Club. No, he did not. No, he uh-huh. did not. Unfortunately, that is. That's kind of a sad story that, you know, Rodney felt the need to share. Um, okay, so who besides us was your favorite to photograph? Who had what? Who who do you think back on and go, God, I would love to work with them again? Well, like Dita Von Tees and I have been working together for decades, and it's always a gem because it's always the crack team doing it, and she knows where her light is. She knows her angles. You press the button and get out of her way. We've worked together so many times. I'm just like, all right, for the close-up, she needs the 100-millimeter macro. For the mid, she needs the 85. I know how she likes to be lit. So we've done dozens and dozens of shoots the other day, and it's always joyous. Um, 
I don't know. I'm one of those people that's so grateful to be shooting that when I smell fresh psych paint and I smell the electricity of the first pop of the strobe, I'm enjoy. I haven't had too many shoots go off the rails. I had one. I shot the cast of The Office for the Emmys. And and there was like a mutiny where publicists, I knew a couple of the publicists and they were nice to me, but two of the publicists were horrible to me. And Jenna Fisher was awful. And uh, and I was just like, all I said to the stylist was dress them different than they are on the show. So Jenna Fisher comes out and she's like, you put me in this boob shirt? I'm like, I didn't put you in anything. I was like, wear whatever you want. And it was just a, a rough, awful day. And then another one was, I wasn't a, this was when I was still assisting a big photographer and it was Christina Aguilera. And, and it, I'd never seen better catering in my life. There's like an iced seafood tower and a man carving <laughs> beef tenderloin. It was like a really lavish shoot at Smashbox. And Christina comes out and, and usually part of my job as the assistant was to just make good vibes for everybody. And Christina comes out and she sees this incredible food, the raw bar. She's like, I'm not eating this shit. And I go, Christina, I got to be here. You got to be here all day. What do you want? Anything you want, I'll send it and turn out to get it. So she was like, I want Subway. And I'm like, Shauna, take Christina's order, go get her Subway. And she's like, and I want KFC. I'm like, take her order for KFC too. And I'm like, is there anything else I can get you? You want Popeyes? You want Burger King? You want Chick-fil-A? And she's like, you think I'm an entitled asshole, don't you? And I go, no, I think it's your shoot and you should have whatever you want. So then Christina, I don't know, goes in this, this hysterical rage, says she hates her makeup, washes all the makeup off of her face, calls a three-hour closed-door meeting before first shot. So we're all just sitting around on Apple boxes just going, what is going on here? And it was supposed to be one simple shoot for a cell phone company where she had those little, like, leather pants, kind of low-cut with the, you know, and then the cell phone stuck into the small of her back and looking over the shoulder and doing a little wink. Well, she did her own makeup, which was like rodeo clown makeup. With like the the bright blush and the blue eyes and the not so good makeup. And I felt bad for the makeup artist because she was getting credited on this. And then we're all set up for the shot. Christina's on the phone standing under the key light. And I'm setting up the computer because I was the digital tech. And the photo assistant goes, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go give her the props. So I go, okay, go ahead. So he's like walking in with the cell phone. And all of a sudden I hear, don't you ever. And I hear a slap and I look up from the computer and she had just slapped him across the face and he comes staggering backwards with a red handprint on his oh, face. And I, go, I go, dude, what the F just happened? And he said, well, she was on the phone. I didn't want to interrupt her. So I just put the prop in. I go, you put a cell phone down, to, down her, the back of her pants without asking her. He goes, I, I didn't know what to do. I was like, dude, go home. I'll clean up the shoot. <laughs> you being here is not going to help. She is pissed. Anyway, the client hated the makeup. They hated the pictures. And they ended up killing the shoot. And I felt bad for the photographer. And they had to do a reshoot. But that was, it was not my shoot. But that was a rough one. That is, we've all been there. So, um, God, there's so much I have that I want to ask you. Um you told a story on your Instagram, and I can't remember who it was about, about an actress that you shot in natural light because it was so perfect, beautiful actress, I don't remember who it was, who started calling you in the middle of the night freaking out. Oh, Rose McGowan. 
Oh, that was it. That made me laugh so hard. Give give everyone the condensed version of that story. All right. So you know, you know me well enough to know I speak to everybody the same. If I'm with the royal family, I'm with the guy, the janitor in the building. I speak to everyone the same. You know, I'm I'm consistent. So I do this shoot with Rose McGowan, and she's not aggressive, but she's a little snarky from the beginning. So she shows up with this hat on, takes off the hat, and she goes, "I cut off all my hair with my with the children's scissors last night." And I'm like. Cool, let's rock it, you know? <laughs> what am I going to do about this? Yeah, you know, the photographers keep the energy up. And she shows up with this socialite friend of mine who knew me. So that was good. She's like, oh, Scott's great. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. So we have a great shoot day. So we're, we're like the third shot in. And she's got this messed up look on her face. She looks mad. So I put my camera down. I walk over to her. I'm like, Rosie, okay? She goes, I don't like that bitch. And I go, which bitch? And she goes, that one, that one with the pink hair, I want her sent home. I said, Rose, I'll send anyone home you want. I can't send her home. She goes, why not? I go, she's the journalist that's interviewing you for the story at lunch. So just block everybody else, artist and muse, you and me and a camera. Let's just go old school. Let's just take some great pictures. Just block it all out. And she's like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this shoot. And I said, let's go walk around the block. And we were shooting in, in Hancock Park at Shane Black's house. So we go like light cigarettes and walk around the block and I calm her down. And then we get through it. And we have a good shoot. She's good vibes and we got great pictures. So she goes, can I get your phone number? So I said, sure. So I put my phone number in her phone and it's like, I get home. I slip all the gear inside. My back hurts. I take a bath. I'm in bed and my phone rings and it's Rose McGowan at like quarter to one in the morning. And I'm like, all right, I'll answer and I'll bite. So I'm like, hey, Rose, what's up? And she goes, it's Rose. I'm like, I know it says so on color ID. <laughs> and she goes, listen, I get final edit on everything that goes into that magazine. I said, Rose, I'm just a help here. I don't get final edit, but I'm happy to put you in touch with the photo editor and the editor in chief of the magazine. And I'm sure they'll do whatever you want to make you happy. And she goes, you listen to me, mother effer. If there's one picture in that magazine that I don't like, I will effing destroy your life. And I said, are you flirting with me, Rose, right now? <laughs> and she goes, oh, you wish. And I go, listen, I'm a down-to-earth guy. If you want to ask me out on a date, just ask. And she goes, go die. And just hangs <laughs> And then they, the magazine, and then I introduced them in an email, and Rose never responded, and the pictures turned out fine, and that was that. I love that story so much. Okay, one last question. Yeah. What story did you not put in the book that you wish you had? Because well, we all have, because you're, when editing, as I always say, you do at one point have to kill your baby. Yeah, you do. It's like oil on canvas. It's never dry. You could keep pushing the paint around forever. So I've just decided, I, look, I have enough to write almost a whole second one. So yeah, I just had to let it go at a certain point. So there there will be more to come. There will be a part two. And uh, go ahead. Yeah, and uh, and I'm also writing a novel about I have to do it in novel format, but I but I had a two and a half year experience uh, where I was dating a drug addled billionaire sugar mama. Did you get good gifts? Yes. What was the best gift you got? I don't. Uh, let's see. I flew naked private to the uh, uh, to Amsterdam, and we took shrooms and went to the Van Gogh Museum. That was a pretty good gift. That was a good uh, one. Why naked I, on the plane? That makes it complicated. Well, maybe it does make it easier in customs. I'm not really sure. 
Well, we put clothes on for customs. But when I when we got on the plane, I was like, you got a steam shower in this thing? She goes, yeah, yeah darling. And she was real Southern. She was like, yeah, darling, why are you still wearing clothes? And I'm like, good point. I never got to wear pants on a plane before. This is luxurious. Uh, but we also, I lived at the Grace Kelly suite at the Hotel Bel Air for seven months. Oh. Like, it was quite a wild ride. Oh, I bet. Scott, I adore you. Anyone who does not follow you on TikTok and Instagram is making a mistake. And the big book of bad decisions is available at baddecisionsbook.com. The Kickstarter runs until November 9th, which is my birthday. And then it will immediately follow on Amazon. But please help the crowdfunding. We hit 120% now. We want to keep going. Well, it is hilarious. You're hilarious. Thank you so much. All right, let's hang soon. Ahura Media Production.